We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans, the sixth chapter. We're working our way through this text slowly, but I'm not sure we could go any faster and receive the full impact of what Paul is teaching us here. We're in a series called Aggressive About Sanctification. Aggressive is the opposite of being passive. The question that we have to ask ourselves, especially in the mirror of this text today, is how aggressive are we at the process of becoming more like Jesus, which is synonymous to becoming holy or sanctified. In the first 11 verses, Paul has outlined the the historicity, the facts of the gospel. We've said over and over, the gospel is really comprised of three components. Facts to believe, theology to understand, and repentance or response to those theological facts. He's outlined the analogy and the facts in these first 11 verses. And then he comes to a series of three commands, three imperatives, where he begins to say, so what? This is what you are to do with the theology and the facts of the gospel that I've just laid out. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are really the transition between the factual historicity of the gospel and the practical implications that are going to go throughout the rest of the book. Follow along as I read verses 12 through 14, Romans chapter 6. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so... That you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master Over you, for you're not under law, but are now under grace. I had one of the most theologically exasperating conversations of my Christian experience at the end of one of my most exhilarating evangelistic opportunities in my whole life. I've told some of you a little bit of the story before. Let me, let me dial it back and show you more of the details. When I was in California serving as a college pastor at Grace Church, one block from Grace Church is one of the largest Buddhist temples in the western United States. I passed that temple every day. And when we would go by there on church, sometimes our family would stop at that red light there and we would pray for the people who were in there. It was a sweet habit to, walk, to drive by there and to think, God's grace can invade even that place. A few years ago, there was a girl who was a part of our ministry named Amanda, and she was teaching English as a second language there at the Buddhist temple. They were looking for someone to come and teach them. They were Taiwanese uh, English, so uh, she went down to teach. Had a team of people and organized uh, this that was a passion to teach ESL, so she had a team that went weekly to teach them English. During one of her conversations with the monks... They expressed curiosity in November of that year about Christmas, about the Christmas holiday. Well, what is this? What do Christians believe about Christmas? What is this? 
all the way up to and including, what's the relationship between Santa Claus and Jesus Christ? Now, you can imagine growing up in Taiwan and having no understanding at all, being uh, dumped into this culture, that that could be confusing. Amanda then boldly made a suggestion. She said, what if I bring my pastor down and we can have a, a conversation and he can explain to you what Christmas is from the Bible? And they said, great. So Amanda came and told me, asked me if I would be willing to do that. I prayed about it for about a nanosecond and said yes. So the first time I went down there, I took my whole family, Kim and the boys, and we went down and it was as close to Acts 17 as I think I'll ever get in my life. There was a giant Buddha behind me. There's two kinds of Buddha in Buddhism. There's a skinny Buddha and a Buddha who needs a diet. This was the skinny Buddha, long neck, long face, sitting there, incense burning, candles going. And these monks then asked me, tell us what Christmas is. And so I got to stand there for a half an hour and explain the gospel through the narrative of Christmas. It was a wonderful experience. We We had a great fellowship afterwards, had cake and ice cream. There's a long story behind that. The reason we had cake and ice cream is because after noon, the Buddhist monks can't eat. So they figure if they don't chew it, then they're not eating. So they get lots of cake and ice cream after noon. (laughs) Not making that up. A few months after that, Amanda was continuing on with her class and they asked her about Easter. And so she said, well, my pastor Rick would love to come back and explain to you the holiday of Easter. And they said, sure. So this time I went back with only two of my sons. We uh, sat in there, but this was an entirely different experience. In some senses, I had a greater opportunity to explain the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, uh, the bodily resurrection, how incredible that is, and got to lay out the entire gospel. They were gracious and graceful, but there was an obvious nervousness in the room. Come to find out, in the house next door, there was a very respected traveling holy man, that they called him, who was visiting the temple that week. He was one who was more enlightened than they were in the Buddhist theology. And after the meeting, they asked me if I would like to meet him. I said, sure. So we went next door. I'll never forget it. You walked into the smoke incense-filled room. He was sitting, no furniture, with his house in the corner, in the floor, with his legs crossed, in his full orange uh, toga, his monastic gown, as they call it. Had to take my shoes off. We went in and sat in a circle, all of us, the monks and this, this, this guy sitting in the corner. And I asked if, if I could explain to him, can, can I tell you why I'm here? And he said, sure. And and to his credit, he listened to me for about 10 minutes explaining what I just explained about Christmas and Easter and who Christ is, how Jesus had died for our sin. And I even said, "You, you can be forgiven of all the sins you've ever committed or will ever commit tonight if you will repent of your sins and this false theology and religion and give your life to Jesus Christ. He was gracious. He was humble. He never interrupted me. He listened respectfully. At the end, I said, do you have any questions? And he paused for what seemed like a long time. And then he said, Pastor Rick, the fundamental difference between what you believe and what I believe has to do with this simple assertion. You believe that we all have sin that we have to deal with. 
I, he said, do not believe in sin. Well, footnote, he was a Canadian. He was not Taiwanese. He had converted years ago and become enlightened. He went on to say that we perceive sin in the Buddhist uh, ideology. It's not really theology, the Buddhist philosophy. Sin to him was living in this world with unskilled ways and unenlightened living. I was at least happy that he understood what I was saying man's problem really is. It's sin. But he didn't agree with that. Therefore, the solution was never going to be Christ for him. I wanted to say so bad. If you don't believe in sin, I wonder how you would feel if I just punched you in the nose. I wasn't pugnacious, but I was just curious. What is sin? It's unskilled living. Unenlightened living. Let me ask you, do you believe in sin? Do you believe in sin? If so, why? And what is sin? Let me say what we said over and over and over in the series on Romans. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel will never be the solution. In our evangelistic efforts, if people don't come to the end of themselves and the beginning of understanding the depth of their sin, they will never sense their need for Jesus. The first spiritual law really shouldn't be God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It really should be God loves you and has a horrible plan for your life if you don't recognize your sin and receive his son. That's the first spiritual law. Sin is disobedience to God. And God regulates obedience by pricking the conscience and defines it with his revelation in the word of God. Sin is not obeying God. And God has told us how to obey him specifically in his word. But Romans 2 even says he's left remnants of the law of God on our conscience so that even our conscience can inform us on moral, ethical decisions. We talked about this last week, but remember John Owen, who, uh, the Puritan, who wrote, Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or, say it with me, sin will be killing you. You're spiritual, and as we'll talk about in the Lord's table in a few minutes, even your physical health and life depend on fighting sin. In a few months, we'll, or maybe a little longer, we'll come to Romans chapter 8, which says, verse, 18, verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and then he says this, you will live. Life is comprised of increasing spiritual health from the fighting of sin. And putting the deeds of the body to death is the doctrine that we call Christian mortification. And that's where we began last week. That's what this chapter deals with. It is very unpleasant to immature eyes. It's very unpleasant to fleshly perspective. But I think if you take a deep breath and you look at what God wants us to be, like his son, if you see the, the mirror reflection of your own soul as, as I look at my own, then you'll understand that this is grace to tell us to stop sinning. We began last week by looking at this passage and breaking it down into really three actions for mortifying sin. And let me just give you a head start 
Everything that I say this morning, everything that Paul will elucidate for us from the Holy Spirit this morning in this passage, you're going to hear again. And again. And again and again. And then all of chapter 8 is going to deal with this. He's going to come back to it in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, 15, and 16. So just know that this is going to be the practical section of Romans where he's starting to, to leverage the imperatives, telling us exactly what to do based on what we know. And as I like to tell my own heart, you better, better buckle up your seatbelt during this section. But it's so gracious. It's so kind for God to give us the pathway to knowing how we can please him and not be feeling for the light switch in the dark, wondering if we have his favor today or if we don't based on what we would do or not do. He says, no, I want to define for you exactly what I've done in grace, what you're to do in gracious sanctification. Now remember, just in, in terms of looking at the, at, the, at the balancing act that Paul is playing here, for five chapters, he's told us that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. You haven't done anything to contribute. I can't be good enough. None of us have anything that can precede the word enough, pray enough, evangelize enough, read enough, obey enough, be holy enough, that God will finally say, you, you, you've passed the test, you've crossed the line, now you're holy and sanctified. It's all by grace. It's all accepted by faith. We cannot earn it except just to believe what God has done. Which makes us, after five chapters, to to simply say, if it's all grace and I don't have to do anything to contribute and I can't do anything to unearn God's favor, then I can live like I want to. And in chapter 6, he begins to tell us, no, receiving grace in justification leads to living by grace in sanctification. He starts that by telling us how to mortify sin. We studied this last week. Let's just summarize it very quickly. The first action for mortifying sin that he gives in this passage is passionate dethroning. In other words, dethroning sin in our life. The language here, it picks up on the language that he used in chapter 5. It's that of a a throne and a king and a kingdom, a ruler. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin rule, reign, be master, be king. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, we studied this for the whole uh, hour last time. Let me just briefly summarize what's going on here. Sin is to be understood as a power that threatens us as believers. Sin is a force, it's a power, it's a desire, it's a controlling, manipulative, lying feature of our unredeemed humanness. How does sin make us sin? How does this power woo us? How does this sin master us? How does this sin rule over us? He tells us right in this passage. Because our mortal body begins to obey it's lust. Now, don't get too hung up here on mortal body. You don't want to become a, a Platonist or a Neoplatonist that says, well, the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. We can know, literally, people concluded from some of, the, some of the, Paul's language here that what we do in the body is not a big deal because that's the flesh. What we do in the spirit, that's, uh, that's saved and justified. So that's Platonism. Neoplatonism began to kind of play with that and work itself into Christianity in the Middle Ages. It's not what's talking about here. He's not talking about the fact that your body is bad and your, your soul is good. When he says mortal body, he'll say later yourselves, which is all of us. He's, he's using terms in parallel. He's just saying that's who you are. That's how you're identified. 
Specifically, though, sin works in our members, our body parts, arms, legs, mind. Sin works in our body by virtue of telling us and wooing us and tempting us to obey its lust. Now, I know what you're thinking. Most people see that word lust. They think of sexual temptation and sexual lust. And that is certainly part of what's in in view here. But it's not all that's in view here. It simply means strong desire, epithemia, something you want to do very strongly and passionately instead of wanting strongly and passionately to obey God. Again, he starts with therefore, based on the fact that you have been crucified with Christ, you have been raised with him in the newness of your faith. And then he uses that imperative, do not let sin rule or reign Bustle you, oh, don't, don't let it rule over you. We, we found out in the end of chapter 5 that sin reigned, ruled in death. Death and sin go hand in glove. They reigned in our pre-Christian existence. They also reigned uh, underneath the Mosaic law, which, which didn't provide, the law itself didn't provide sanctifying grace. Death reigns through sin. Grace, though, reigns through righteousness. He's going to talk about that for the rest of the chapter. And then he uses this metaphor that we'll just touch on today and and explore more in the coming weeks of slavery, masters and slavery. We're going to have a whole section in a few weeks talking about slavery in uh, uh, the Greco-Roman world. You cannot equate uh, as a one-to-one relationship slavery in the last two or three hundred years with that. Almost everyone was a slave. There was upwards of 90% of the population was a slave, which was a glorified employee of the aristocrats who were the employers. We'll come back to that when he specifically talks about the mastery as a slave over a slave. But he tells us here, at least in verse 14, to not let sin be our master. You and I are born with sin as our Master, our ruler, our Lord. Verse 12, Paul cuts through the symbolism of the metaphors and tells us exactly what to do. He says, okay, I've given you symbols. I've given you analogies. Now I'm going to just, just come after your heart. He tells us specifically, do not let sin rule and reign in your mortal body. Don't obey its lust, its desires. What does this mean? There's been a great debate over the centuries on what that means. Uh, Can you be totally there? Um, uh, Charles Wesley developed, uh, John Wesley rather, developed this this theology that says, if you try hard enough and apply enough grace, you can eventually get to the point where you won't sin anymore. This This can be an actualized reality in your life where you just will not sin and you'll be perfect. Well, that hasn't worked out in anybody's life to anyone's knowledge Not only that, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. So that can't be what's going on here. He's talking about responding to a fight. Now, sometimes we think, I'm going to pick a fight with sin that's reigning in my mind, in my my body with its desires. You don't pick that fight. You've already been punched. You've already been knocked out. You've already been waylaid by this fight. You start out in a nine-round fight... Eight rounds behind from birth. And he says, fight, fight, fight. 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Uh, we'll come back to this in a few weeks, but Ephesians tells us that, that lust is a liar. Our sinful desires promise us something that they can never fulfill. Lasting satisfaction. Only Christ offers and fulfills that. We looked into this specifically last week. I don't want to belabor the point. Let's move on to the second action for mortifying sin. And this is where it gets in our kitchen, as my mom used to say. Intentional yielding. A second action for killing or mortifying sin is intentional yielding. Verse 13 says, And, don't obey our lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body, parts of your body, to sin as tools or implements of unrighteousness, but... Present, offer yourselves to God as as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For a Christian, every sin is the result of an active choice. Every sin you and I ever think, every sin you and I ever commit is the result of an intentional, willful Choice, And it may be the end of a lot of other choices. My old pastor used to say, when a man falls into serious sin, he doesn't fall very far. That was the end of a long progression of decisions that were made. But it is an intentional, active choice. But here's the deal. It's a choice that we can't help but make. I don't want to steal from the last part of the chapter, but he says we're born as slaves to a master, slaves to sin. You can't help it. It's in your nature, and you can't blame anybody else. If you're less than 40 or 50 years old, you want to understand this. But the devil didn't make you do it. There was an old sketch on a comedy where... A man would dress up as a little old woman. This sounds weird to even describe to someone who's never seen it. Flip Wilson. And he was, uh, what was her name? Geraldine, Geraldine. And her whole thing was, the devil made me do it. That was her little shtick. And we laughed and it was cute and it was funny. But it wasn't true. The devil has never made you sin one time in your life. If we threw the devil and all the demons into hell today and they were locked up with no access to this world, that would not change your pursuit of sanctification. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. He can lay traps, but he can't make a sin. Every sin is a result of an active choice. Look at the text. Do not go on. The Greek is continuing to offer us the word of an offering and present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Um, uh, peristemi, from histemi, it means to, to offer. It's used sometimes of giving an offering. Sometimes it's used of simply, simply making yourself available to. In Romans 12, 1, just look at that for a second because you see a little bit 
different angle on this exact idea. This is the same word. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, do not, or, or rather, to present, same word, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's the idea. It's the idea of making yourself available to, offering yourself as a sacrifice. I find it interesting. In Matthew 26, 53, the same Greek word is used where Christ said if, uh, that if needed, the Father will at once put at my disposal, present... More than 12 legions of angels. The most common way this word is used in the New Testament is to refer to to bystanders. Those who are by the side waiting to be used as a resource. It means to ever be at the ready, to be at God's disposal for the purposes of righteousness. But we are born at the disposal of sin to perform unrighteousness. This is setting up what Paul's going to fully explain in verses 15 to 20 about our slavery to righteousness. But just hold that in, in your mind for now. Paul uses some very explicit, very descriptive language here. He does not say merely offer yourselves. He'll do that in a moment. But he says specifically, do not offer any of the members of the parts of your body. Now, this is not just talking about our flesh. It's talking about all that we are. I have a toolbox that never seems to have the tools I need in it when I need them. But it is a toolbox and it contains tools. There are uh, the, the, the most frustrating thing in any job, which is every job for me, is to try to do a job with the wrong tools. Um, I, I can use the back part of a crescent wrench as a hammer better than anybody you've ever known. Uh, I can use a hammer as a screwdriver. I'm pretty creative at at doing things. Um, Here's the challenge, though. That word, instruments, is the word tool. We are all in the toolbox. We, We are the right tool, the right instrument for unrighteousness naturally. We present ourselves, we offer ourselves by virtue of our sinful natures to unrighteousness. It's not hard to do. Paul's calling for a radical redirection. The issue is yielding our body in any or all its parts, even our mind, to any sinful desire, as it says in the, at the end of verse 12. And look at the parallel, by the way, in the last half of the verse. Here he says, don't present your members. Uh, The next phrase, he'll say, present yourselves. So it means all of who you are, your body and your mind, all of who you are. Romans 6, 19, we'll come to this. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's where he's going with this argument. Romans 7, 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That's the natural inclination. Romans 7, 23, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members All that's summed up best in what he tells the Colossians in Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider, think, reckon the members of your earthly body as, you know the word is, right? Dead to immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. This passage raises, this first half of verse uh, 13 raises the question, are you, am I, aggressive about dealing with our sin? Aggressive about sanctification? Aggressive about holiness? Are we active or are we passive? Let me ask you a series of questions. Are you actively fighting sin's power in your life? We said, Hebrews tells us there's besetting sins. You, you know that sin or those sins. If you're a maturing believer, you can identify it right now, can't you? You know that sin could be of the body, could be of the mind, could be jealousy, envy, lust. It could be any number of sins. But you know, given a moment, we'll, we'll come to the Lord's table in a minute. You should be able to identify that's the sin for which I need grace to repent of. Are you actively fighting it? Do you have a strategy for fighting it? Are you purposefully fighting sin's power? Are you intentionally fighting sin's power? Are you deliberately fighting sin's power? Are you carefully fighting sin's power? Are you consciously fighting sin's power? Or do you just kind of let go and let God Have you calculated the presence and persistence of sin's sway in your heart? Can can I just ask you a blunt question? Do you know how bad you are? Do you realize the inclinations of your heart? Do you see wickedness? Are you shamed by your own conscience and the work of the Spirit of God in your heart where you just come to the the throne of grace and say, I'm so sorry. This is not who I want to be. Please give me enabling grace. Do you know where the devil sets those booby traps for you? As Lloyd-Jones said last week, we've been delivered from one field into another with a road between. Do you find yourself living on the fence line where you can hear all those wooing calls of your old life? Do you understand? Have you really grasped the fact that you can say no to sin? This passage isn't telling us to be perfect. It's telling us to be more perfect than we are. Not to rest in our sinfulness. I know Adam preached on this a few weeks ago and I alluded to it last week. But do you believe God? Do you believe God? Do you really honestly believe God is telling the truth when he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken to you, but such as is common to man. No one can ever say, but it's worse for me. And God is, what's the word? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Here's the key. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Sins of the body, of the mind, sins of relationships. You don't have to sin. Here's, if I can give you an illustration. You are on a, 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 a road, and a, a freeway that's, that's going 100 miles an hour called your, your sinfulness. 
and you're pursuing, all of us, I am pursuing sin at every possible avenue and angle. And yet when you're saved, God puts countless, innumerable off-ramps all over the place. Do you, do you see the off-ramps? Do you see the escape hatch? Do you know how to get out of it? When, or when you get into a temptation situation, an opportunity to gossip, an opportunity to lust, an opportunity to watch something you shouldn't watch, an opportunity to say something you shouldn't say. Do, do you even look for the off-ramp? This passage is, is telling us there's an off-ramp. Don't let sin reign. Get off that highway. And for anyone who ever tells, and here's what the devil will whisper in your ear. Yeah, but it's worse for you. Nobody's really suffered, struggled. No one's tempted like you. No one understands that if you don't say this about that person, they might get away with it. No one understands if I don't fulfill my lust, I'll be unhappy. No one, once you begin to say, I have it worse, the devil has you. Exactly where he wants you. There's always an off-ramp. There's always a way not to sin. Do you believe that? There's always a way not to sin. Now, you should be saying, that's great, but how? How do I do that? This is where I think we get off track. Is We look at this first part of verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body uh, as instruments of unrighteousness, unrighteous acting, uh, thinking, sinful expressions. And we think, okay, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to quit that. I'm going to uh, uh, put all these safeguards in my life. That's half of the equation. That's not all. He goes on. You have to get to the next phrase. But present, that's the same word, offer. Make yourself available to as a resource. Present yourselves to God. And then he goes back to the facts of the gospel. As those alive from the dead. You have to draw a straight line from that verse over to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God has made you alive And your members, your mind, your body as instruments, as tools of righteousness to God. God's using us in the toolbox to create righteousness in our lives, in this world. This is where too many people, I think, lose the fight with sin. It's easier to see the sins of commission than the sins of omission. Let me explain that. The sins of commission are things that we, we, we do that we should not do. God says, don't do that. We do it. We feel bad. Those are sins of commission. Those are pretty easily identified. This talks about the sin of an omission. That's omitting the fact that we not only turn from sin, but we turn to God. We offer ourselves as righteousness to God. We pursue God. We read our Bibles. We pray. We go to church. We go to small groups. We talk about God when we can. It's always on. It's not just moving from. It's moving toward. It's not just taking off. It's putting on. Let me say it again. I have never spoken to someone in serious habitual sin, moving toward greater sin, who at the same time told me, and I am having the best quiet time and devotions of my life right now. It just doesn't happen. 
yes, we need to know that we don't have to sin, but also understanding that there's the sin of omission, omitting to present ourselves to God. Do, do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Do you read Christian books? Are you involved in fellowship? Are the people in this room, people who are acquaintances that you have uh, nice conversations with, you share nice meals with, but do you offer permission and offer yourselves to correct one another and to move us toward God, to present ourselves toward God in righteousness? It can't just be stopping. It has to be starting. Now, let's ask the question. So how do I present myself to God as righteous. You are holding a book that will tell you every nuance of what that means. And it's not the same every day. And it's not the same every passage. You'll be working on this the rest of your life. He goes back to this imperative, indicative connection. Imperative is what to do. I'm telling you something to do, Paul says. Indicative is based on a fact, something that he said was was fact. He says, as those alive from the dead, he's already told us we've been crucified with Christ and been raised with him to newness of life. I mean, here's the question that Paul's begging. (laughs) Is your life new as a Christian? Is it different? And if it begins to... Track that path, Peter says you will quickly be identified by your unsaved friends as a stranger and a spiritual alien. You will act, look, sound entirely different than the other occupants of this planet. Because, Peter says, this world is not your home. You're a citizen of another place called heaven. He uses the same verb, meaning to put yourself at one's disposal. So the question is, are we putting ourselves at the disposal of our sinful lust, or are we putting ourselves at the disposal of God? In the moment of temptation, have you learned to say, I am dead to this power. I'm dead to it. I am alive to God. As sure as Jesus rose from the grave, I am alive to do what pleases him, what is ethical, what is right, what is morally excellent in this moment. I don't have to be a a slave to my unrighteousness. Am I alive to honoring my Savior? Yes, you are. Do you act like it? Am I alive to pleasing my Savior? Yes, we are. Do we act like it? You know what so much of that's secured by? Is a good healthy dose of the reality of God's omnipresence. Do you often gossip about someone standing in your presence? No. Do we sin against God willfully with the full knowledge that he is standing beside us. Typically, no. A.W. Tozer's famous line, in the moment of sin, every Christian becomes a practical atheist. We may say we believe in God, but we act like he doesn't exist. Have you learned how your own heart loves to elbow the truth of God and the presence of God and the reality of God out of your immediate vision so you and I can enjoy immediate sin. 
Do, do you see your heart do that? Can you trace how your heart works against yourself and your soul like that? That's the path to spiritual maturity. Are you intentionally yielding yourself to God or are you passively, unintentionally yielding yourself to sin? That's the question that verse 13 raises. Which leads us to a third action for mortifying sin. Purposeful remembering. And it's just, I say this all the time. It is always amazing to me how the text that we're studying leads us to the Lord's table. You just can't make this stuff up. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Underline it, star it, highlight it, circle it, put an asterisk at the top of the page. Whatever you do to find this verse, remember, sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What is this talking about? We're only going to introduce this verse because this really introduces the rest of the chapter where you're going to talk about this master-slave relationship between us and God or us and unrighteousness. Paul reminds these Roman believers that the gospel, the good news of God, is a message of grace and not law. He's been talking about law and grace for five and a half chapters. First of all, before we talk about law and grace, how clear is the first part of verse 14, is this, you know, I was looking at putting my notes together this week and I thought, what do you say that makes this any clearer? Sin shall not be master over you. You know what that means? Sin shall not be master over you. It's the language of slavery that he's going to fully develop in the last half of this chapter. For now, just know that it's a powerful admonition from one who called himself the foremost of all sinners. Paul said that about himself. He says, don't let sin reign. Don't let it be master over you. He used the image of of a, a monarch two verses earlier. Now he uses the image of a lord and a slave. Now, what does that mean that we are not under law? This has tripped up so many people. And they say, oh, we're not under law, we're under grace. And it's led, led some people to believe, well, I can, you know, I can sin and do what I want. I'm not under the law. That was the, for the Old Testament. Now I'm under the New Testament. Well, do you really believe there's no grace in the Old Testament? And do you really believe there's no law in the gospel? James says we're under the law of Christ. What he's saying is the Mosaic law, the law that Moses gave in itself, never gave anyone the power to say no to sin. In fact, Galatians tells us it actually did the opposite. It exasperated us. It kept saying, there's where you're wrong. There's where you're wrong. There's where you're missing it. There's a sin of omission. There's a sin of commission. Look, 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 look. Which makes us run to God to get the power to obey the law. But by this point, remember, he's still talking with a largely Jewish audience who's think, who had this mindset that if they could obey the law, they could really own God's favor. Chapter 2 and 3, he just unmasked that reality. It's a lie. Now he comes back to it again and says, we're not under law. We're not trying to earn God's favor by obeying the Mosaic regulations. Aren't you glad about that? There's north of 600 of them. There's only one power that can keep us from sin. 
And it's the very power, it's the very object that the antinomians were using to try to get away with sin. You know what it is? It's grace. Grace is the motivating feature and factor of our lives. We are under grace, which moves us to be more holy, not to be more sinful. Romans 5, 21. Sin reigned in death, even so. Grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is so simple in in Titus 2. Just, Just listen. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. Listen. For the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's what Paul's been telling us for five chapters. Now watch this. That grace that forgives our sins... Verse 12, instructs us, teaches us, informs us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace, when understood properly, moves us to holiness, not toward sinfulness. It instructs us. It's our teacher. How many times do we sing it? He breaks the power of canceled sin. Does he? Has he? I can't wait to get Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no stratagon, strategy, provision, plan for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I told you Martin Lloyd-Jones is a hero of mine and he is just blisteringly penetrating in this section in his commentary on Romans. I want to read you a small paragraph that he says about this and it's just it's a little bit of an indictment on, on those who would try to do this uh, wrestle with our sin passively rather than aggressively. He says this, quote, I do not know of a single scripture and I speak advisedly, which tells me to take my sin, the particular thing that gets me down, to God in prayer and ask him to deliver me from it and then trust in faith that he will do it. Listen to what he's saying or he's not saying. He's just, he's saying, I, I, there's no scripture that just says, go pray to God, take it away and just hope he's going to do it. Now that teaching is often uh, put to you like this. You must say to a man who is constantly defeated by a particular sin, I think your only hope is to take it to Christ and Christ will take it away from you. But what does the scripture say in Ephesians 4.28? This is so, it's almost humorous. To the man who finds himself constantly guilty of stealing, to a man who sees something he likes and takes it, what am I to tell such a man? Am I to say, take that sin to Christ and ask him to deliver you? No, the apostle Paul tells him this. Let him that stole steal no more. This is it. Just that. Stop doing it. If it is fornication or adultery or lustful thoughts, again, stop doing it. He does not say, go and pray to Christ to deliver you. No, you stop doing that. He says, as children of God, stop it. End quote. What he's not saying is don't go pray about the power. But you can pray all you want. Eventually, you have to make a decision. I have to make a decision to not sin. This is not 
I've prayed about it and I sinned again. Well, God dropped the ball. God didn't give me the power to, to overcome it. So this is God's fault. What is he saying? Stop. You know, we can save a lot of counseling time with each other. I'm struggling with sin. Stop it. Just stop it. I remember hearing Elizabeth Elliot's testimony. And I'll never forget this phrase. She says this. Postponed obedience is just simple disobedience. She's right. Do you remember? Do you have purposeful remembering that sin doesn't reign and that you have the grace and power and freedom to say no to sin? Imagine this. You are in a cold, musty, damp, underground, lightless dungeon of sin. Christ has now, he's not unlocked the door, he's taken the bars away. He has broken through the window of light. He has shown you the way out. He's taken all the guards who would have looked over you and put them on the other side of the planet. And he woos you and says, come to righteousness. And what do we do oftentimes? We sit in there acting like we're shackled with the chains on the ground, looking at the open door and saying, yeah, but unless he, get, unless he makes me cause him, I wouldn't. Uh, what excuse do we have? None. What power do we have? Every. The question is not, is God's grace powerful enough? The question is, have you come to the place where you will say, sin, you will not reign over me? Do you do that perfectly? No, it's called heaven. But you do it progressively. Progressively. 